Hello, and welcome back to Cuban Serenade, a podcast series exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. A special thank you to creators Freddy Monasterio and Karen Dubinsky for inviting me to guest host this episode about Afro-Cubanismo, an unparalleled festival that brought some of the biggest names in Afro-Cuban culture to Canada in 1994 and 1996. My name is Melissa Noventa, and I will be your host as we continue to explore Cuban music in Western Canada, this time in the mountains of Banff, Alberta. For this episode, I spoke to Andy Schloss, the creator and program director of the Afro-Cubanismo Festival, as well as Michael Spiro, who was the musical coordinator. You will hear from Cuban faculty members, including dancer and singer Ana Perez from the Muñequitos de Matanzas, along with Antonio Figueroa and Ramses Ramora Molina from Afocua de Matanzas. You will also hear from Cuban musician, producer, and social activist Luis Bran, who acted as a translator during the festival, and festival participants including Mario Allende and Luis Orbegoso, who are both musicians and producers now based in Toronto. We will explore how the Afro-Cubanismo Festival was brought to fruition and hear about the sometimes unexpected ways that cross-cultural learning was transmitted. But most importantly, we will hear about the relationships that were forged and the impact this festival left behind. In 1994 and 1996, the Banff Center of the Arts and Creativity hosted the most extensive exploration of Afro-Cuban music, dance, and culture held outside of Cuba since the 1959 revolution. Afro-Cubanismo was a 10-day festival dedicated to Afro-Cuban music and culture and brought together over 30 of Cuba's most renowned musicians and dancers from Havana and Matanzas to perform and teach workshops in both folkloric and popular genres. This roster, which can only be described as epic, included artists like Chucho Valdez and Iraquere, Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, Amelia Pedroso, and Cuban modern dance pioneer Eduardo Rivero. The festival integrated film screenings, an art exhibit, parades, and lectures, including several by Cuban ethnologist Natalia Bolivar. Besides participants from Canada and the US, the festival drew approximately 110 attendees from across the globe, including Germany, Japan, and Zimbabwe. Participants ranged from amateur artists to well-known professionals, including Jane Burnett, the late Vic Vogel, and the late Hugh Fraser from the Canadian jazz scene, and David Garibaldi, drummer for the American funk soul band Tower of Power. The festival also included concert performances that were open to the public and attracted upwards of 900 people per night. Despite the success of the Afro-Cubanismo festivals, little is known about this important moment in Canada-Cuba cultural exchange. Currently, there is no official archive of the festival, and as it approaches its 30-year anniversary in 2024, it remains a moment in time cherished most by its surviving participants. I caught up with the program director and visionary behind Afro-Cubanismo, musician, researcher, and professor at the University of Victoria, Andrew Schloss. Now a dual citizen, Andrew was born in the United States 
and began playing percussion at Hartford, Connecticut during the 1960s. He went on to study at Bennington College, the University of Washington, and Stanford University, where he received a PhD working at the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Andrew began traveling to Cuba in the 1980s, when it was particularly risky for Americans to do so. After having made a connection to Cuba's electronic music scene through a donation of music journals to the UNESCO office in Havana, Andrew found himself going back to Cuba regularly, attending Havana's electronic music festival as a guest of organizer Juan Blanco. Andrew also helped to set up the National Laboratory of Electronic Music in Havana and regularly exchanged electronic music gear for drum lessons. Merging his interest in high-tech and low-tech music, Andrew's attention to Afro-Cuban music would plant a seed that would eventually bring the Afro-Cubanismo festival to life. He shared the festival's origin story with me. In 1990, I took the job in Victoria, and I really didn't know much about Canada, like most Americans are ignorant of Canada. But the one thing I did know was that as a Canadian, I perhaps could do something in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So two things happened. One of them is that Spyro and I started a record company called Fundamento Productions. And I was the guy who could do it because I had my Canadian citizenship. So we started a Canadian company and we, Spyro's probably still has a bunch of suitcases full of our record, Iluanya, which you probably have. Mm -hmm. um, and, then there were, and then there are other ones that we did. And we kept that going for a long time. And finally, you know, it wasn't worth it anymore. Right. But, but in any case, um, the opportunity to do something in Canada, really, it was twofold. One was to start, start this company and support Cuban artists by basically we would just hand carry um, the um, whatever we made on these records. We would give them to the artists uh, pretty much directly, um, which, you know, they were very, very grateful for, if you can imagine, because it was hard currency. But in the process of doing that, I also, when I was teaching in Victoria, I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, what can I do in Cuba? And then my opportunity came in a very bizarre way. In about 1993 or so, I don't remember, um, the dean at the time asked me to give a presentation to a, one of these national dean conferences. Right. So I sort of reluctantly gave a talk about my work. But here's the funny part that one of the everyone there was a dean, pretty much, except there was one woman there who was not a dean at all. She was the artistic director of the BAMP Center for the Arts, and her name was Carol Phillips. She's a art, basically works in art curator and gallery curation. But at the time, she was the artistic director of BAMP. And I had lunch with her. I don't know how that happened, but and she kind of just said, you know, anything you'd like to do at BAMP which is kind of an amazing question. And I said, you know, I would love to do a festival of Cuban culture. And she said, okay. <laughs> and it's like, I can't believe this. This is too much. This can't be true. Because, you know, Banff had all the money. I don't know if they still do, but you know, they're very wealthy from the oil. So it was kind of like, what would you like to do? I mean, it was a, one of these insane opportunities where you didn't have to worry about paying for it. Mm -hmm. It turns out it was it, it was a very successful festival uh, because we were able to bring in so many students mm -hmm. uh, from all over the world. But it still, it took the resources of BAMP to pull it off. It was a you know, massively complicated and expensive thing. But anyway, she backed me up and we did it in 94 and it was a big hit. We did it again in 96 and I couldn't get it to happen again. Um, 
but it was a, absolutely a dream come true for everybody. And all of all places in the middle of Alberta, the cultural connection in Alberta, which is a very white, sort of pretty right wing, you know, the cattle culture, there was one breath of fresh air, which was Edmonton. Edmonton had an ethnomusicology program at the university. It also had a, a collection of I think Chileans who were pretty left wing. So there was a really strong support from Edmonton. Oye niño, vamos a ver si ponemos cosas a los canadienses aquí, compadre. Vamos a hacerle saber a los canadienses que están los muñequitos de matanza. Vamos, vamos para allá. Bueno, envíte un trago. Ahí vamos allá. para allá. Pero ya que estoy aquí. Y veo que quieren ustedes saber quién soy yo. Pero ya que estoy aquí. Y veo que quieren ustedes saber quién soy yo. No pierdan tiempo, suban al cielo. Y cuando le abran la puerta. Musician and producer Mario Allende, now based in Toronto, spent his youth as part of that Chilean community in Edmonton. He spoke about what it was like and how it contributed to his early exposure of Afro-Cuban music. Well, no, I think by the time Banff came, like that, that the festival happened, there's already probably Colombians, Chileans, Salvadorians, um, not many Cubans at all. I think those were, those were really the big, the big groups. And now that's probably changed uh, as well. There's probably more Mexican immigration. It, it all changes depending on which countries and the big, you know, which countries kind of going through the craziest amount of shit. <laughs> that's usually how you can trace it. So that's why Chileans got there maybe first, but I mean, quickly people had to come from Colombia and then Central America because of the different um, situations. Now that said, and my, my two cents is like when everybody comes under those, um, under those terms or, or because of those uh, because of what happens in their country like you're not necessarily getting um, that many you're, you're getting a bunch of people that maybe um, music and culture is not the first thing that they have to deal with and they have to that they get to explore that they get to um, experiment so I I have always seen that there was culture for sure in the Chilean community everybody's trying to like maintain their their traditions or maybe, um, you know, like my dad would bring different groups from, from Chile to try and just promote the culture and also what was happening. Um, so he used music in that way. But I guess what I want to say is it's not like there was a great scene of, of musicians. Not like we were, we had salsa bands. It's not like there, there were, that it had been able to develop that much. Long story short, I'd say that there was um, a desire, like kind of in that solidarity, like in solidarity with Cuba. There would have been some people that that made an effort to to go to Banff, but it, it, I don't I can't say that it was that big. Other than you know my dad putting on a show for Muñequitos, um, which probably helped a little bit. So when they came because of Banff, um, he brought them to Edmonton. That's where I first met them. Actually, it would have been a couple days before Banff. So in that small way, there there was a, a connection. I think a guy like me. And most of the Chileans that would have been living in, in Alberta at the time, if we had any exposure to Cuban music, it would have been through like Silvio Rodriguez and and some of his later, at the time, recordings were working, working with um, that Grupo Afro-Cuba, not Afro-Cuba de Matanzas, but Afro-Cuba, the, 
the jazz group, that's where I started hearing those those drums and those rhythms maybe for the first time. So then there was that little bit of familiarity. And in around 90, 91, is, he did that concert in Chile. It was very, very important concert at the time when he, he went back to Chile for the first time since um, when the dictatorship kind of ended. He went back and did that concert at the soccer stadium. And that's something you might be able to find online now. But that was a very big band. That was like Irakere, a bigger version of what actually would come to Banff. So I had already seen that. So at the same time, I can't just say like, oh, I was just like meeting buddies for the first time. It's like I already knew about Chucho and like Carlos del Puerto and Enrique Plá. All of those guys were in that that concert that I remember like, oh, shit, these guys played in, in a soccer stadium in Chile with Silvio. I knew that they were a whole other level of musician that I for sure had never um, had to deal with before. retired professor, and 10-time Grammy nominee Michael Spiro was the musical coordinator for both Afro-Cubanismo festivals. He spoke to me about the significance of the faculty roster that he helped to create. I mean, I, that's the thing that, that's why I think that trying to find some way to document this is, is of value, even historically. Like, like to have the best of both provinces from a folklore standpoint. Um, like, when does that ever happen? And then to have the popular music component of, you know, all of Irakere plus Changuito plus Richard Egues. I mean, this was like some fantasy that that somebody was dreaming was about music and dance and, and then somehow or other made it happen. Transforming Afro-Cobanismo from a dream to reality was no small feat. So what exactly did it take to bring this all-star lineup of Cuban artists to the Canadian Rocky Mountains? Andrew gave me a glimpse of what went on behind the scenes. For me, I, uh, I needed a lot of help. And of course, I got all of the administrative help you could possibly want from this amazing machine that is BAMF. Right. But I also, I also needed experts in Cuban culture. And there were two issues there. One is that it's not something that is particularly well established in Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's partly the case. The other part 
that's more my issue is that I didn't know if there were Canadians who were experts. Right. I didn't really know them. I knew one conga player in Vancouver, but I didn't know any people like Spyro. And Spyro is pretty unique. I mean, it turns out I made the right choice. I hired Spyro. I hired Rebecca. I hired, you know, all these John Santos who had to leave because of a relative died. The point is I hired Americans, which which was kind of on the edge because Banff was paying for it. But mm -hmm. I just wanted to get the absolute most talented, most knowledgeable people. And they really, you know, you can't beat Michael Spiro for that. There were also some issues that I had never dealt with before that were very interesting for me and challenging, which was Canadian content was a new idea for me because, you know, I grew up in the United States and there's no such thing as U.S. content. Right. Why? Because it's so hegemonic to begin with. There's no requirement, right? So in Canada, I, I totally understand the Canadian content idea, but it was it was hard for me because I just didn't know anybody. Right. But it was also good because who did I meet through that pressure? I met just wonderful people like Jane Bennett, the flutist, who came to Banff and brought her people with her. And she was thrilled to be at Banff with right. Richard Aguas, the most famous member of Aragon. Anyway, I did bring Canadians to this festival, but the people who were teaching the classes and helping the Cubans were mostly Americans, which, as I say, I was a bit nervous about, you know, about bringing in all these Americans. process was sort of like the ultimate dream because thank god i was able to bootstrap bamps already you know massively uh well organized structure for putting on events so this is perfect for me because it was kind of like saying well who would you like to bring from cuba anybody you want so okay so i make my dream list and they all wanted to come it was a big dream you know we all dreamed who who who's you know who's amazing mm -hmm. and we've just brought everybody and um so it was up to me to kind of submit the list, but I was always listening to everybody I knew, you know. And then the cool thing, though, was that, as I say, once that I had the list, then the Banff Center did this insane amount of bureaucratic work, um, just getting visas and, you know, also how do you pay the Cubans and all that negotiating. Um, so there was an, a massive amount of work that I didn't have to do, which is a good thing, because really, that's not my thing. So they have their infrastructure set up. There was a woman named Carol... It was Carol Phillips, who I mentioned already, who was the director. I used to call them the two Carols. So Carol Holmes was the administrator who made it happen. And Carol Phillips was the artistic director who, who allowed it to happen, who, you know, who opened her doors. Um, yeah. So in terms of the decision making, then basically the artistic choices, the broadest artistic choices were made by me with open ears to the community of experts that I knew. And then BAMP basically made it go.
Once everyone arrived at Banff, the participants were asked to choose a focus in either popular or folkloric genres. To help everyone get the most out of their experience, each participant was auditioned and then placed in a class according to their general level of proficiency. Peruvian-Canadian musician and producer Luis Orbegoso, whom you heard from in an earlier episode, shared his story from the 1994 festival. <laughs> it was, it's funny you mentioned popular music because the first day that I auditioned, I know we all had to audition, and the first day that I went, it was I remember it was, it was, it was Michael Spiro um, holding that audition. I think there were other people holding other auditions as well, but I decided to go in the in the popular music category for whatever reason because I thought that I was what I was getting into was just playing popular music from Cuba, and I I knew you know I, I heard of Enjela Banda, and I also heard of you know Silvio Rodriguez and Pablo Milanes. So when I popular music to me was just the sound of the music and more pop sounding music. So I thought okay. I might as well go in there and, and, and learn how to play pop music the way Cubans play pop music. Like I was totally, <laughs> basically I was totally, I was shooting, I was shooting away, away, way out of, of, of from the bullseye. Really what popular music was, was then after the, the whole thing concluded, obviously I knew that popular music was more like learning how to play those rhythms back in the day, you know, the popular rhythms, maybe some timba, which was just getting started, songo, um, rumba, which was also thrown into the popular setting as well, because when you had big bands, they would arrange and, and they had rumba sections and maybe a little bit of bata. But I think I, 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 was, I was able to understand more what the popular music thing meant when I actually started going to the classes Originally, I think I was, I, I don't even remember who I was going to study with, but I really wanted to study with Changuito because, like I said before, Memo introduced me to him through recordings and I also heard them on shortwave radio. So I auditioned and I was put, I think I was put in one of the Miguel Anga um, classes. And I didn't, I mean, not that, it, not to disrespect, but I, I had, set like in my mind i'm like no no no. i'm gonna study with chango i'm gonna study with chango so i would sit in on chango's classes i had no congas i remember and i was playing on my lap whatever chango would play i would mimic on my lap because you know at that point i already played some congas and i already studied with orquesta revés conguero tumbador carlitin at the time so anyway i had some knowledge and i would mimic what chango and chango's like like, and then the actually also the first night in a descarga, I got up and I played some timbal and I soloed and I mimicked what, what I heard from Chango solos and Chango was really, uh, he was really happy with me. He's like, you should go into my classes. Like, I don't know where you are now, but come to my classes. I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> Once auditions were completed, it was literally nonstop action for 10 days. Mario reflected on what a typical day might look like. Oh, you'd get up um, kind of first thing in the morning, like say 9 a.m. There would be, a, at least for the musicians, I don't know about the dancers, but I think the dancers were there as well. Everybody would just go sing first, like a, maybe a half an hour uh, singing class. And then you would go to your first class of whatever it might be, like folkloric percussion or drum set, or you know that, that starts to depend on, on each individual participant then you would have your lunch break and in the afternoon there'd be another session 
there would also be a, a master class. I don't remember if it was every day or not, but around the lunch hour, you would go and maybe Chucho's explaining something and Changuito's playing along. A bit of a mini concert or master class. You'd probably go grab dinner and then get ready to go to the concert. So there was always a concert. There might be the Havana folkloric guys would do their concert, or maybe Chucho would do a concert, but just with the Canadian jazz musicians that were there. Or maybe another night is Irakere doing a concert. And then after that, they would have the the jam sessions. And that was a really great part of the day where you just go watch these guys jam. And it was just such a powerful thing to see. I I think it it still would be. That's where a lot of the, I think the the magical stuff happened. Like I could be sitting right beside the the drums. It was a very, very um, informal setting. And that could go till whenever, as late as you you could handle it and then go to bed and see if you could do the same thing the next day. But at that age, you could. (laughs) I could anyway. While the core of the Afrocubanismo festivals was constructed around formal workshops and performances, the descargas, or jam sessions, were an especially important part of the festivals. Starting in the evening and lasting into the early hours of the morning, faculty and students were welcome to participate. They characterized one of the several ways that cultural knowledge was transmitted outside of a classroom setting. Michael Spiro elaborated on what the descargas were like. What you and I... I think would argue is that BAMP gave these different, and here I think the dance is critical. All these different artists a chance to be in the same place at the same time, and then at nighttime to interact in ways that they never would have. So Chucho's playing piano, and um, and Del Porto's playing bass, and and so-and-so's playing trumpet, but the muñequitos are the rhythm section. But then also, all the dance teachers are dancing, which means then all the dance students are da- dancing, trying to figure out what their teachers are doing. And then it becomes this, I mean, I've never been to, you know, God, I, I won't even say it, but like this Woodstock type sort of, just who you don't even know what to call it anymore it becomes this 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 other entity and i think that's the thing that that mel that i was trying to talk to you the other day about about it wasn't just that the faculty was interacting but that all of the it was everybody's students as well all somehow thrown together into this one melting pot to where it started to not be teacher student faculty student it was just these people that's where i think then being in banff nowhere else to that never would happen if there's a workshop in montreal and and i think that that's the critical component to all of this 
But it wasn't only festival participants that were impacted by the Afro-Cubanismo festivals. In May 2022, I went to Cuba to interview some of the surviving Cuban faculty members from Afro-Cubanismo in Matanzas. They all spoke fondly of Cubans located in the United States who would travel to Banff to simply greet faculty members or to sit and listen to a music class. They also spoke fondly of Canadian families who weren't necessarily participating in the workshops that would take them out sightseeing and shopping or welcome them in for dinner. Dancer and choreographer for Afrocuba de Matanzas, Antonio Figueroa, shared one of his favorite memories with me. So, the exchange was, I bought right there in the town of Banff, in that town, I bought a pair of leather boots, a pair of leather cowboy boots, because I love cowboy boots. I love them. I've loved them all my life. I really like them. And what was the exchange? The boots cost $100, and the shop owner said, look, I'll give you the boots, but you have to teach my wife to dance salsa. So I said, okay, music, boys. And so the guys who were with me started singing, and I started dancing salsa, salsa, and the owner of the shop said, okay, we'll be there tonight at the club. I don't remember what the name of the club is. And the man and his wife arrived with a bag, and they said, here. And they gave me the bag with the boots. And we spent the whole night dancing salsa. The woman wouldn't let me rest. It was dancing salsa, dancing salsa, dancing salsa. And I said to myself, Figueroa, that $100 is going to cost you. But she learned to dance. Yes, she did. ¿Qué le pasa, Afro-Cubanismo festivals coincided with a period when the Cuban government began a renewal of nationalizing and exporting Afro-Cuban culture as a means of increasing tourism. For several Cuban faculty members, the festival in Banff marked their first experience traveling abroad. Ana Perez, dancer and singer for Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, and Ramses Zamora Molina, musician and dancer from Afro-Cuba de Matanzas, shared some of their most memorable moments with me. All of us went to bring an offering to a shoon, down by the river. It was spectacular, spectacular. Everyone was left fascinated, and us especially, because we didn't know. We had our notions from here, but we didn't know that there were so many people like yourself who were interested in all these things. And when it came time to teach, and I saw how big that dance studio was, and I saw all those students. I said, ah, Yvonne, and now? And she said, Anna, what do you mean? What's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I find myself nervous. You start, and then I'll jump in. Really, that was the conversation. And so she began teaching first, and then I incorporated myself. It was incredible. When I finished teaching that class, that huge workshop, all the students came to surround me, and I fell to the floor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
tuve la gran suerte. I had the great privilege of meeting several big artists while I was there who are no longer with us, like Maestro Richard Egwis. And Natalia Bolivar was there. And the people told me before I went, watch out for the elk, because an elk reared at Professor Natalia. And the National Folklore Company was there, and Maestro Chucho Valdez. That was the last year, but Irakere worked and played. And I had the luck of working with them, not as a musician, but as a dancer, for a composition they had called La Danza Nyaniga, sung by the great master, Mayra Caridad Valdez. And I was there dancing, and so we fused Afro-Cuba with their abajua drums and they with their music. I was a teenager and never imagined to find myself there working with this level of artist because I began in Afrokoba as a utility guy. I never thought I'd get there. It was really big, really emotional, bringing our folklore to that country. It was immense. I had the great blessing while I was there at the festival in Banff. I was giving class and my son was born while I was away at the festival. And the students were so happy, they threw a small party for me because my son had been born. It was big. Banff was a beautiful place. One night, I, I took Jesus Alfonso and Nino, the singer for the Muñequitos, into town. And I bought them. I said, I'm going to buy you guys dinner. Come on. And I, who knows where we went. But the waiter comes up and says, okay, so what, you, what would you guys like? And they looked almost surprised by the question. And and I thought, what's, and, and they, they both like in unison went, carne. And, you know, please no more chicken or, you know, vegetarian, <laughs> you know, bring me meat. So to this day, this is a true, this is absolute truth. You know, Jesus, Jesus is long gone. But when I see Nino, we greet each other with that word. And I'm not, I'm not making that up. I don't go, Nino, mi hermano, como estas? He doesn't go, Miguel. No, no, no. The greeting is while we're shaking hands, Carne. That was Michael Spiro sharing a memory that speaks to the specific historic moment the Afro-Cubanismo festivals took place in. During the 90s, Cuba was experiencing the height of what is widely known as El Periodo Especial, or the Special Period, a prolonged social and economic crisis following the collapse of the island's primary trading partner, the Soviet Union. In fact, the first Afro-Cubanismo, hosted in August of 1994, 
took place only three weeks after an important and rare protest took place on the streets of Havana, known as the Malaconazo. While I was in Cuba, I also spoke to musician, musical producer, and social activist Luis Bran in Matanzas. He was living in Canada at the time of Afro-Cubanismo festivals, working as a percussionist for both the decidedly jazz dance company and the University of Calgary's dance program. He had also been running regular cultural exchange tours between Calgary and Havana. He was hired to be a translator during Afro-Cubanismo in both 1994 and 1996. Here is some of what he recalls about the festival. Si te, si te pones, eh, eh, if you take stock of when this festival occurred, you'll note that it took place in the middle of a severe food crisis here. The worst year was 1993. But in 1994, well, there was the Malaconazo, there was the crisis of the Balseros, that was a critical moment. And when I was reviewing the papers we recovered of the meal plan and everything, from what I remember, it wasn't like that. That is, I don't know who in the organization decided, because someone had to have decided, that this system wasn't going to work. That you put money on a card and each item would cost whatever amount, or you were only entitled to a certain main dish, that was a lie. It was like an open bar, and someone had to have thought about it. I think it was a change that must have been designated because there was a point of joy and ambience in the festival that you couldn't control on the side of the Cubans. Because I remember the tables full of food and beer. It was such an important stimulus for them, as much as receiving students, I think. And in this aspect, bravo to the Banff Center, to those who made this possible, that there was the vision to release limitations on everything so that everyone could be happy in this moment. But there was no talk of politics ever. No talk of politics ever. It was like a break from the bullshit. The proximity of the festival to the upheaval in Cuba was not lost on its organizers, participants, or the media. Local newspapers touted the festival as an artistic coup and a Cuban invasion of the Canadian Rocky Mountains. Even Radio Martí, a right-wing information company that broadcasts to Cuba from the United States, approached organizers to report on the event. Nonetheless, performing, not politics, seems to have remained the driving pulse of these festivals. 
I remember talking to journalists from the U.S. and、um, I started realizing that this could get out of control, and that we were in a way better off being in this faraway. That was part of the, what was so weird about it was to be in the middle of nowhere in the Canadian Rockies. Of course, you were talking about a bunch of fanatics, right, who were put together. So yeah, there's no question. Whatever people's politics were, it was irrelevant. You know, here we are together. This is happening. There's my hero, you know, Changuito, Anga, whoever your hero happens to be, Richard Egwes. It's like forget everything. You know, we're here together, and we're in this neutral space. And in Banff, you're so far from any kind of political anything. You're just out in the woods. So I'd say people were free to absolutely bathe themselves in this culture that they were so. Devoted to, without any fear or argument. I don't think I heard anyone arguing about politics because that's not why they were there. You know, they were there for the culture. In the midst of Treaty Seven territory in Alberta, there was indeed plenty to explore and celebrate about Afro-Cuban culture. But Alberta and Canada certainly had its own political dynamics. Several Cuban faculties spoke to me about seeing tipis, along with other performative representations of indigeneity. That are typically used to represent Canadian culture, and while Canada may have been able to boast friendlier relations with Cuba than our U.S. neighbors to the south, for most Canadians, sensibilities about Cuba's African heritage were often less than friendly and highly exoticized. The very title of this podcast strings together several newspaper headlines that expose a failure on the part of Canadians to come to terms with its own internal racial politics. In fact. The entire 1994 festival was almost shut down when someone tipped off the RCMP out of fear that animal sacrifices would be occurring during the Afrocubanismo festivals. Despite all these complex dynamics, the Afrocubanismo festivals did help to lift the shroud of mystery most Canadians would have had around Cuban and Afrocuban culture up until that point. Still, perhaps the most meaningful impact of the Afrocubanismo festivals. Were the professional networks and the friendships they introduced, many of which still thrive after almost 30 years? Luis Brand shared how a conversation at the 1994 festival with Agustín Díaz Cano, a percussionist with Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, had an important impact on him. For me, that was super important because it was the moment. This is the moment professionally. Where I relocated myself to Matanzas, because that right there is where Agustín told me to leave Havana behind. That the next time I went to Cuba, I should go there. And he said, "Let go of Havana. Let go of Havana. You need to come to Matanzas." And so later, I had a friend of mine from Matanzas that was returning. And I had a photo that I had taken in the classroom with Toto Barriel, and so I gave it to him. And I said, "When you get to Matanzas, give this to Agustín, and tell him that I'm coming." But if it wasn't for that moment at Afrocubanismo, I would have never come. But it's incredible how this had such a profound effect. Insofar as I could arrive here, and arrive here with the sense that I already knew a whole group of people who remembered me not as a musician, no, but rather as a person who helped them when they were in Canada. 
And I remember the first time I came, my second goal was to form a group. That is, it was to return to Canada and form a group of students and return to do the classes here. And so the next exchange we did was not in Havana, it was here. And it remained here, and here is where I met my current wife, and the rest is history. It's incredible. And I still have many friends and people with whom I do projects. I have about three or four people who were there, who have come to do projects with me here in Matanzas, including Michael, who today is one of my dearest brothers, and we continue to produce music together. It's incredible, and really, there is where we became friends. the 1996 festival rolled around, the success of the first Afro-Cubanismo festival had gained traction, and both international participants and Cuban faculty were eager to return. Surprisingly, even though the 1996 edition of the festival proved to be equally successful, Afro-Cubanismo was not renewed for a third time. I asked Andrew and Michael for their thoughts on this. And then the Buena Vista Social Club uh, came out right around that time, 95 or 6 maybe? And then that was, that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, we should have kept doing it. Branf would have made a lot of money if they'd kept doing it when that Buena Vista Social Club hit and became like the number one record. And of course, it was, that's a whole other story. But it was a massive um, influx of cash. And I think politically, Banff backed away from it. Um, I think they were not happy about this kind of incomprehensible thing that took over the BAMP Center. Um, <clears throat> and so they didn't renew it for the third um, the third time. It would have been a biennial. Also, Carol Phillips got pushed out at around that time, and she was the really the champion of it. Um, if it hadn't been for Carol Phillips, it never would have happened. You know, Andy, part, part of what, if you listen to your languaging, this thing that took over the BAMP Center, um, I think it's important to sort of note that that I don't I don't think when when the, there's a brass workshop they don't like what this thing was another animal unto itself. There's never been a workshop that was like you know at five in the morning there's still you know, 300 people tearing the place apart kind of thing. And I don't know how you, how you can explain or express that, but it was, this was not a workshop. This was some other thing. Danza, 
In many ways, this thing called Afrocubanismo was a perfect storm, or perhaps a perfect descarga. In both 1994 and 1996, the festival enabled a specific blend of intensity, authenticity, and focus to emerge cutting across cultural and political contrasts and encouraging a range of deep exchanges to occur among participants and faculty. Nearly 30 years later, the ripple effects of Afrocubanismo continue to be felt and memories of the festival carry on. Perhaps not in a traditional archival sense, but through living archives, through surviving faculty members who continue to generously share the knowledge of Afrocuban traditions, through participants, who continue to carry forward a respect for Afro-Cuban culture in their work, through professional networks that formed and continue to produce cross-cultural collaborations, and most importantly, through the friendships that began in Banff and continue to flourish. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cuban Serenade. Thank you to Luis Orbegoso for the live sound bites he shared from his personal archive for this episode. Thank you also to Andre Dupuy for the time and expertise he gave helping me to produce this episode. And my deepest gratitude to my friends in Cuba, especially the remaining faculty members of Afrocubanismo in Matanzas, who took the time to share their memories despite the many day-to-day -day challenges they faced during my visit. Los agradezco con todo mi corazón. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Cuban Serenade as Karen Dubinsky and Freddy Monasterio continue to explore the history of Cuban music in Canada. Hasta pronto!